0: Welcome to the Shell Community Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by the following message. Good evening everybody. It's um, great to see you at, uh, that you didn't try and give too many jokes about Melbourne because I get the microphone last. And so, so given that you were gracious to me, I'll be gracious to you as well. But, uh, um, yeah, we do live in Melbourne. We've been there for 27 years, but I was born in Manly, uh, at Manly Hospital, and uh, lived in Guymere actually for 10 years. And uh, then we uh, moved to Canberra as a family, so I think of myself as a Canberra boy and uh, grew up there and went to high school there where started university. I got a bit confused when I started university, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I'd worked for a year, I was one of the uh, original gap year guys, so we're talking now 42 years ago that I did all of this. and So uh, I worked as a theatre orderly in Canberra and watched all sorts of different operations take in people's brains and uh, watched the first incision. We lifted a 24 stone woman onto an operating theatre table. Operating theatre tables are really narrow, and, uh, and to try and get somewhere that's got 24 stone of weight, they all talk about kilos now, don't they? I wonder what that is in kilos. It's and uh, and so, <laughs> so, anyway, it took four of us about 10 minutes to get her position on it, and then they did the first incision and there was no blood, and they did the second incision and there was no blood, and then the third one came. And, uh, and so um, I've you know, had a, an interesting life I um, came to faith when I was 25 I was a student Marxist politician at university I thought Christians were nerds and a waste of space and uh, that they were weird and they should be with out of their faith I seem to be going in and out of Problem or do we need a handheld mic or what are we going to do I, I don't mind uh, yeah, whatever you like you're the boss I'll follow orders so. where, where to go well here we go it's like having a tail and uh so um yeah i argued with all these weird christians and then they prayed for me and i became one as well and uh and i'm very grateful that i did uh, I'm incredibly grateful that I did at the age of 25 and so um, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Uh, I'm a learner. Um, I've been learning for 35 years how to become like him and that's my goal in life is to become like him. I might actually lead a church and uh, you know people say lovely things about me like Eugene did tonight which I'm very grateful for but at the end of the day I'm just like you. I'm trying to learn how to be like Jesus. I'm becoming like him along the way and I'm I'm learning how to do that and it's an interesting journey isn't it learning to become like Jesus because we've got all this stuff inside of us that doesn't actually want to be like him. Um, we've got all this stuff inside of us that actually prefers to do it our way and, uh, and you know our way is sort of the better way uh, but he really does have a sheepdog-like ability to bring you to a point where you go, oh, shoot, you're right again. And uh, and so so the joy of following Jesus and becoming like him is that you find freedom. You On the inside, you just discover, wow, I'm actually a nicer person than I used to be. And... Uh, and so, you know, my, I've been 27 years where we are right now. We planted the church back in 1990 and, uh, and we have a very open, collaborative style of church. And people uh, give me sort of a backhanded compliment often by saying, you're such a nicer person than you used to be. And, uh, and it's like, well, that's because I'm becoming like Jesus, you know, and I, I'm on my own journey of discovery of how to do that. And so tonight I want to just take a few moments with you to Think, think together and have a conversation with you, even though I've got the microphone, about what, is it, what does it look like to learn to become like Jesus? What, what's the learning process look like and what is it that you're actually trying to become? Because we are disciples and we're meant to end up looking like him. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, it says that Jesus was the firstborn amongst many brethren and that there are others who are predestined to be conformed to his image. And so the idea that God had when Jesus came and died on the cross was not just that you would get to heaven, but that you would live your life like he lived his life here on the earth. That we are our destiny, my destiny, your destiny is to look like Jesus, is to think like Jesus, is to to act like Jesus, is to bring miracles to people around me to bring healings to people around me to bring love to people around me to show them the grace and mercy and kindness of God and and so the idea that God had in mind was that Jesus was the firstborn of this great big family of people that would just look like him that's your destiny that's my destiny in John chapter 17 he actually prayed he said father as you have sent me into the world I now send them into the world And so as a disciple of Jesus, I've made a decision that I actually am on a journey to become like him. That I would be a little mini Jesus running around on the face of the earth, bringing the life of heaven to other people. I wonder what you think about when you think about being a disciple of Jesus. Who are you trying to become? What is it that you see about yourself? I turned 60 about six weeks ago and so i got a, probably another good 15, maybe 20 years ahead of me, although I do have a very good friend in uh, Melbourne, Hal Oxley, who turns 100 in November and uh, he's uh, just a wonderful man of God. He preached in our church last year and people still talk about it uh, today and the stories that he had to tell. But but so, you know, so over the next 20 years, what am I trying to become? What are you trying to become? There's a bunch of young people here tonight. And, and, uh, and so what are you trying to become over the next 50 years? What do you dream about becoming in terms of being like Jesus? I'm thrilled that if you dream about being an entrepreneur that has millions of dollars and you have four houses and 10 cars and a helicopter and you commute to Sydney to do whatever you do. that I, I'm thrilled if that's what you think about, but I'd actually want you to be thinking as well and more importantly about how are you going to become like Jesus? What does that look like? Because our, our cities, our friends, our neighbours, our workmates, those we go to school with, those we attend university with, need us to become like him yeah. because then they'll become weird like us as well, just like we all have at one stage or another. And so tonight I want us just to think a little bit about what do we, how do we learn? How do we learn? And what are we becoming so the first thing is how do we learn and we're going to watch a little animation clip together as we learn some lessons about how is it that we actually learn to be like jesus very good so how do we learn to become like jesus well pippa had to learn how to feed himself pippa had a mother who put him in a position where He had to change from being someone who just received to somebody who understood how to eat and find his own food. And so when we're learning to become a disciple of Jesus, the thing that I've discovered, first of all, is that I have to change my posture and my expectation. I actually have to learn how to posture myself in the presence of God, not in the presence of my own understanding. I need to learn how to posture myself in front of his word, and learn from his word rather than learning from all the things that I think make the world go around. And I have to change my expectation. I have to change my expectation that I'm actually going to, everything's just going to be served up to me by a God. When I, you know, when I first got saved, you pray for car parks and you'd always get them and you know, you pray for all sorts of things. But then you start to learn to follow the Lord and it gets a little bit more difficult. You hit a few challenges, you hit a few valleys, you hit a few issues. And what the Lord's trying to do is to increase our capacity to trust him that we'd actually learn that God takes a long time to act suddenly, that, uh, that he is just a God who loves to create patience inside of us and he wants us to be faithful to him. And so, so Pippa had to change his posture and his expectation. That our, The expectation that we have is that God is actually trying to get us to become like him, which means that we have to stop being like us, which means that there are things about the way that we think and the way that we see life that he actually wants us to let go of Pippa had to let go of the expectation that mum would just come and drop food into his mouth and he then had to learn how to do that himself. And so learning to be a disciple of Jesus has got this peace spirit inside of it where we need to change our posture and change our expectation. And that's a lifelong journey I've discovered. I, I'm on a prayer sabbatical right now. I've been on a prayer a retreat. I'm not connected to my office or you know, in the day-to-day running of our church. I haven't been for the last six weeks, and I've got another eight weeks of it ahead of me. And, uh, and so I've led this church for 27 years, and to be disconnected from the day-to-day running of the church has been a fascinating place of detox for me because I'm used to a lot of activity and outcome, and now I start each day about 8.30 and turn up and say, well, here I am, Lord. I'll start speaking in tongues and I'll worship and we've got till 5 o'clock so I hope you figure out how to fill in that much time because I'm not used to how to do this. But the amazing thing is that as I've learnt to change my posture from activity and outcomes to one of relationship, it's extraordinary how quickly 8.5 hours goes by each day and that I connect with the Lord. And I find the Lord speaking to me about a whole bunch of things on the inside of my world, even though I've been following Him for 35 years. There are still things on the inside that he wants me to change my posture about. That I need to learn how to rely on him and trust him in ways that I've always been afraid to. The thing is that we've all carry fear. Every single one of us carry fear. There's things that we're afraid of, there's things that we doubt. And there's just a moment I think that's coming into the body of Christ where we can actually be a little bit more honest with one another that we are scared and we need help. And the Christian life was always meant to be done in community where we would help one another, and the only way to do that is to be honest with one another. And that we actually reach out to one another for help and so so we change it to be to learn to be a, a disciple of Jesus is about changing posture and expectation the second thing we learned from Pippa about learning to be a disciple of Jesus what we're trying to become is that we need to change our perspective so that our behavior changes and so he had tried to get the food and but then he found some little hermit crabs that helped him to realize that if you dug yourself into the sand you actually saw some stuff that you've never seen before. And the Holy Spirit is actually wanting to get us into some places where he helps us to see things that we've never seen before, that our perspective becomes his perspective, and we then begin to change our behavior. And so the whole thing about becoming like Jesus is that it actually influences how we behave, how we respond and the sorts of things that we value and the sorts of things that we pursue. And so the Holy Spirit leads us into these places. The, the hermit crab for me is just a, another type of the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure that he's happy about that type, but he probably prefers to be the dove. But, but he's, he's the, this little hermit crab who knows how to put us in places where we will see things that we've never seen before and that we need to trust him, that we need to trust when he takes us into those unusual places to dig down into the sand. He's never seen his mum dig down into the sand, when sometimes we've never seen anyone around us do something. But this is where great moves of God come from, is that there are young people who initiate something new that us older guys haven't seen before, and we gather beneficiaries of it. I stand on the shoulders of some people that were younger than me at some stage who found something new about God and it's my hope and dream that at Stairway, the young people will stand on my shoulders and take me into places that I've never been able to get to. That it's a generational thing. It's a handing on of the baton. And so those of us that are older need to trust that the younger ones, they might do it a different way, but they will find some stuff that we can feed from. And that's the wonder of this little animation for me, is that Pipper ends up being able to feed everybody, not just himself. That he's able to, because of what he learned, because he actually changed his posture and his expectation. And because he allowed himself to have his perspective and behavior changed, he then influenced that whole community of birds. And so when it comes to learning to become like Jesus, there are just some very simple things that we can all do and that God calls us all into. And it invariably, after 35 years, I know that the majority of the change that's come to my world that's helped me become more like him means that I have to change my posture and expectation in front of him and I then have my perspective and behavior changed by the Spirit of God, which then enables me to help more people and that's ultimately what it's all about. And so I'm learning to become like Jesus. So if we're trying to become like Jesus, what after 35 years of following the Lord, what do I think is the single most important thing that I need to become so that I can help the kingdom of God come to this earth? And I think that it, for me anyway, I found it and because I've got the microphone tonight. You're going to indulge me as I tell you what I think it is. And then Shane can fix it all up next week and all the other pastors can after I've gone. But for me, it comes down to Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus said, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe... There's a dead spot there. Don't go there, Peter. Teaching them to observe all that I command you, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So for me, the teach them to observe or obey, depending on the translation of the Bible that you're reading, to observe all that I have commanded you. The one thing that Jesus says after being with the boys for three years, after doing all these extraordinary miracles, he says the one thing that I want you to continually focus on, teach them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. The word observe or obey there means to guard from loss by keeping your eye upon. Guard from loss by keeping your eye upon. So teach them to guard from loss by keeping their eye upon all that I have commanded you. The word "their eye" is unbelievably important. Most of us think that Jesus said that the two great commandments were to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love one another as you love yourself. And they are the two great commandments, but we think that's they're the commandments for New Testament living. I want to suggest to you tonight that they're not the commandments for New Testament living. They're the commandments for Old Testament living. Jesus in John chapter 15 and verse 12 says, um, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then in verse 17, he says, this is, I, I command you, love one another. And in John 13, verse 34 and 35, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Jesus actually gave us his own commandment for New Testament living, that when we follow it, we actually will fulfill the two great commandments. But there's a fundamental difference. The, the, this commandment that Jesus gave us sounds like the second of the great, two great commandments from the Old Testament. That commandment, the second commandment of the Old Testament, says love one another as you love yourself or as you love your neighbor. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. If it's a new commandment, there's some new information in here that we've never heard before. And he says, love one another, which sounds like exactly the beginning of the, first, of the second commandment. Love one another as you love yourself or as you love your neighbor. But this one says, love one another as I have loved you. There's a fundamental change that takes place in the way that God is relating to mankind. And that is that he wants us to discover how much he loves us. Because when we discover how much he loves us, that empowers us to love other people well. Now the dilemma that you and I face is that we've been raised in a Grecian model of education and so we come and do church like this and we listen to somebody like me and they tell us that God loves us and we think if we know it in our head that that's good enough, we know it now. But the truth is that you don't. The truth is is that you still find that when people hurt you, you want to hurt them. When people hurt you, you find it difficult to forgive them. I learned this back in 1996 when 380 people left our church. We'd started the church in 1990, it grew to 1,150 people by the beginning of 1996 and then there was a friend of mine who actually led 380 people out of our church over the next 18 months. That wasn't a great moment for me, that was was a pretty difficult year for me and I have to say that my instinct was to go and get an AK-47 and blow him off the face of the planet. (laughs) I'm sorry if that shocks you but that was my internal instinct. My rage at times dropped and I was happy to get a sledgehammer and break his kneecaps, but essentially, (laughs) I wanted to hurt him. It took me six to nine months to get to a place where I could actually imagine meeting him in an airport and opening my arms to hug him and say, how are you going? But that was a journey. You see, you don't know how deep... Sometimes we only learn how to forgive deeply by being hurt deeply. And so you go through life and, and you, you, because, so because I've made a decision that I want to become like Jesus, that becomes the anchor of my soul. And so when I face tragedy and difficulty and, and I'm overwhelmed by life, what I'm trying to do now is, all right, Jesus, what would you do in this situation? How would, what would you want me to become in this situation? But he's gracious enough to understand that I have to go on a journey. It's not just going to happen like that. You see, we've got two seats of knowledge. I knew that I had to forgive him. In my head, I mean, I'm a preacher. I've led a church. It's grown around me. Blah, 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 blah. I know that I'm meant to forgive him. But this seat of knowledge in my heart is feeling rejected, is feeling abandoned, is feeling misunderstood, is feeling taken advantage of. And it's touching some of the deepest fears that I have in my life. You see, fear is attached to shame. And all of us, when we were growing up, we, we, we wrestled with shame. And it leads to fear, and that then leads to control. And when you're trying to control your world, you're not able to love people well. And so Jesus wants to set you free from all that stuff. And the only way he can set you free from it is that you actually realize it's in there. And so he allows circumstances and relationships to come to your life so that you're able to see it for what it really is. Because what he's primarily, what the Lord is primarily wanting us to do or wanting us to become, sorry, is lovers of other people. But we can't love people from places of control. We can't love them when we're sulking. We can't love them when we're trying to punish them. We can't love them when we withdraw from them. We can't love them when we're criticizing and judging them. Jesus said, guard from loss by keeping your eye upon all that I have commanded you. Love one another as I have loved you. And so he's wanting us to experience his love. Ephesians 3 verse 19 says, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Every single one of us want to be filled up to the fullness of God. That would be our greatest desire, that every day I'm filled up with the fullness of God and I just go around sharing God with everybody that I touch. How do you get there? To know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. That Greek word there, to know, means to know by experience and encounter, because this seed of knowledge is more powerful than this seed of knowledge. When you face trouble in life, you will not respond from what you know in your head, you'll respond from what's going on in your heart. And so the pain that we experience has come from experience and encounter. My shame of failure came from growing up in a Roman Catholic family as the eldest child. I'm not against the Roman Catholic faith. It was just the way that I was taught about having to, you know, deal with an angry God and all that sort of stuff, which I'm, you know, I'm all healed up from that these days. But, but it, it's, it was in there, there was this shame that if I failed, I was a bad boy and I'd get punished for it. And so that shame of failure led me to be afraid I had a fear of rejection, a fear of failure, a fear of being misunderstood and a fear of being taken advantage of. And So I would use the strength of my leadership gift and I'd use the intellect I've got in my head, which is very powerful. I taught my year at university and a whole bunch of other stuff, which is somewhat irrelevant. So I got my leadership gift, I got my brain and I got my strong choleric temperament, which meant that I could keep all of that fear at bay, pretty much, by making it everybody else's problem. But there comes a point where the Lord says, I want to set you free because I want you to actually love people, not control them. And you may not see yourself as a controlling person, but we all control our world to keep it safe in some way. We let people know that their behavior is unacceptable, we let them know that we don't don't think what they're doing is right, we criticize them, we say things on social media that we'd never say to their face. And really what we're trying to do is to get into a place where where, we're the top dog. And so the Lord goes, I want to change the world through lovers. So therefore, I'm going to help you become a lover. Because Jesus said the most important thing is to guard from loss by keeping your eye on. When you make disciples, the one thing you are to keep teaching, the hub of the bicycle wheel... We're meant to teach about tithing and being generous. We're meant to teach about forgiveness. We're meant to teach about grace. We're meant to teach about the gifts of the Spirit. We're meant to teach about being community. There's all these things that we teach about, but the one thing all of those spokes are meant to come back to is how much God loves us so that we love other people well. That was the one thing he said to keep teaching about. Always reference it, never lose sight of it. And so I have personally become convinced that the Lord is trying to get me to experience his love on the inside. But the problem that I face is that I've experienced love another way and so what we wrestle with is that we've got this God who wants to show us how much he loves us he wants to get past what we think we know in our head and show us what we know in our heart so let me describe to you how I think all of us in the room have found and experienced love because it will help you then to understand what God is actually trying to do to transform you to become a lover like he's a lover so the thing about all of us is that We find love by trying to belong, be secure, and be significant. Every single one of us, we want to belong, and we want to be secure, and we want to be significant. These are three emotional needs that God has put inside of us and he's created all of us with. And so this need to belong, this need to be secure, and this need to be significant, we're born with it into our families. And so you'll discover it when you go to a new school, if you go to a new new university, you go to a new job. You're you're wanting to feel like you belong and you're wanting to feel secure and you're wanting to feel significant. And so in your family of origin, if you had a family of origin, there might be some people here tonight who were orphaned or who have been fostered out and that just complicates this little conversation. But wherever it is that you grew up, in deep inside of you, so that you feel safe and secure, you want to belong, you want to be secure, and you want to be significant. And so, the way that you discover that, so you find love through those three things, but we experience it by answering this question what is right and required for acceptance? We all want to be accepted. And so, we're, we're, what's right and required for acceptance? What have I got to do to belong? What have I got to do to be significant? And what have I got to do to be secure? And that's different for different families. If I turned up here tonight dressed as a goth and you hadn't met me, that's not what's right and required for acceptance at Shell Harbour Community Church. You would look at me and you'd wonder, who on earth is Eugene brought into this place, let alone shame. What's right and required for acceptance is that I come dressed in a certain way and I speak in a certain way. If I start to read from the Koran, again, that is not going to win a lot of acceptance from you. And so what's right and required for acceptance in your family of origin, in my family of origin, what was right and required for acceptance for me was that I was a good boy and I didn't get anything wrong. And I learnt when I wasn't a good boy and I did get something wrong that I got some pretty cold pricklies. But I got warm fuzzies when I was a good boy and I didn't get anything wrong. And so we figure out what's right and required for acceptance. We, if, you know, I was over in Europe uh, last year, we've been to Europe a number of times, you go into Catholic cathedrals, the presence of God is amazing in numbers of those Catholic cathedrals. They might not have our theology, but they have been worshipping God there for a long time. And I walk in there, so you walk into the Sistine Chapel. What's right and required for acceptance in the Sistine Chapel is silence. But I connect with the power, with the Spirit, with the presence of God in the Sistine Chapel, and every Pentecostal bone in my body wants to shout and dance like we were tonight. They've actually got men in there whose job is to go shh. And so my Pentecostal expression does not bring warm fuzzies in the Sistine Chapel. It brings a bunch of cold pricklies. And so I, to belong there, I have to do what they want me to do. And so we experience love by answering this question, what is right and required for acceptance? And so what that then does is because it's what is right and required for acceptance, it builds a performance mindset. And we feel like we need to perform to belong. We need to perform to be secure. We need to perform to be significant. And all of us bump into this in some way. Now, the dilemma with this is that we end up experiencing conditional love on the basis of our performance. And then we meet this wonderful God, this extraordinary God who loves us unconditionally. He's not interested in your performance at all. He doesn't love you because of your performance. He loves you because of who He is. God's love for you is based on who He is, not what you do. There is nothing that you can do that will separate you from the love of God. Nothing. All of your sin has been forgiven. Jesus was a sacrifice once and for all and for all time for all of your sin. He doesn't count any of your transgressions against you. But you see, we're used to performing to belong and to be secure and to be significant. And so we start to relate to God on the basis of my performance. It's actually, this is why religion flourishes, because it's actually easier to relate to God on the basis of rules, because we're used to rules. To relate to God on the basis of relationship where I'm totally forgiven is like, flip, that's too good to be true. Now, there's a whole bunch of messages out here, please. I'm not talking about hyper-grace tonight and don't sort of come and talk to me about, you know, one of those hyper-grace guys. When we make mistakes, we need to repent. But that's, you know, there's about five other messages out here, so just cut me some grace tonight and, and come with me on a journey of this extraordinary grace that we've received. And so, you see, the dilemma is that when performance comes, it creates counsels of fear. So, in my family of origin, I had to be a good boy and not get anything wrong. Now I'm afraid of not being a good boy and getting things wrong. And so that's where my fear of rejection comes from. It's where my fear of failure comes from. Well, I don't have it anymore where it used to come from. I got healed up all about 12 years ago, but that's another story entirely. And so this is why I know that we all wrestle with fear. Every single one of us in the room wrestle with fear. But normally our fear, the way you'll find your fear sometimes is that the Lord will actually ask you to look at what are you performing? What are you doing to try and belong and be secure and be significant? And he actually will let that fear come to the surface. It was, it was terribly debilitating for me when it came to the surface. I, I actually, I had a meltdown and It was just one of the most difficult times of my life, but it led to one of the greatest, most freeing moments of my life when God actually stepped in because perfect love casts out all fear. And so so we experience fear because of the performance bias in our culture and we bring that fear with us into our relationship with God, but guard from loss by keeping your eye upon how much you're loved by God so that you can love others well. So if I've got fear, I can't love well. So what does God want to do? He wants to set you free from the fear. And he wants to give you an experience of that. Because it's the experience to know the love of Christ, to know the love of God which surpasses knowledge, to know by experience and encounter in here which surpasses what you know in your head so that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. And so I've personally become convinced that to become a great disciple of Jesus, I have to learn how to love like he loves And the only way I can learn to love like he loves is to let him deal with my pain. To let him deal with my fear. To actually acknowledge that he wants to set me free from it, but the only way he sets me free from it is that I own it and I give it to him. And I say, I don't want this anymore. But that's a process all in itself because when we give things to God, we're so used to hanging on to them, they're attached to a piece of elastic and we give it to God and then we take it back again. (laughs) We say, God, I, I, I'm in this moment of ecstasy and worship and I give you my fear and we feel like we're set free from it and we walk out into the foyer and somebody says something and bang, it's back there again. I thought I gave that to you. Yeah, well, you took a few years to build it into your life so it's going to take a little bit of time to get rid of it. It's a process. It takes time. It takes walking with God. And so what I've discovered is in uh, Colossians chapter 3, I don't know these verses off by heart as well as I do the other one, so excuse me, because I've got to go back to the pulpit and actually read the Bible rather than... This pulpit's a long way away from people. You must spit when you preach. That's why I'm <laughs> It's the save the congregation from the pastor's spit. So I'm going to come down and spit on you. So Colossians chapter 3. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved... Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, that that verse still amazes me. I would have thought that all those things were love. But he's about to say, beyond all those things, put on love. Which is the perfect bond of unity. You know, it's great that we've got a combined churches thing happening here tonight and I celebrate that and I'm totally into it and I, I'm just so privileged to be here. I'm privileged to see the, uh, what you've done for the community around here. Psalm 133 says that God pours out blessing on unity. But we've allowed it to become unity of purpose more than unity of heart. We love one another contractually, not covenantally. We love one on a basis of, I expect you will... Most of us love, you know, people, uh, as long as you do what I expect you to do, I'll love you. But once you don't do what I expect you to do, I'll give myself permission not to love you. I give myself permission now to criticise you or whatever. But the Lord is actually calling us into a place where we've made decisions about who we're going to be for one another regardless of how you treat me. I'm going to be kind to you even if you reject me. I will shower you with flowers and chocolates if you reject me. So if you want flowers and chocolates, write me a nasty email and I'll send you some. I, I I am going to be kind to you because that's what Jesus asked me to do. Now, if I find that I can't be kind to you, then that's actually helping me to discover something that needs to change on the inside. That my natural, God, when I am like God, when I'm like Jesus, I just, I'm kind to you. It doesn't matter what you do to me. But if I'm not being kind, it shows me something on the inside of belief in here. So that ver- those verses begin uh, <laughs> I've, been preach- I've been preaching too much. This is the seventh time I've preached in the last 36 hours. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, you know, there's all these equations in the kingdom of God. If you don't know that you're chosen and you're holy and beloved, you can't put on all this stuff. You see, one of the things where we get disappointed is that we try to be who God wants us to be without actually going through the process to help us become who we need to become. And so if you don't know that you're chosen and holy and beloved, you're going to find it difficult to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. So the thing about God is that he anticipates that you would have revelation, knowledge, you would have experience of being chosen, of being holy and of being beloved. I find these three words really interesting because when you know you're chosen, you belong. When you know you're holy, you know you're significant. And when you know you're beloved, you are secure. Those three driving emotions... That are inside of us, those needs for where we find love, being belong, secure, significant, are all met by a loving God when He reveals to us that we are chosen, that we're holy, and we're beloved. When you know in the depths of your heart, not in your head, that you have been chosen by God since the foundation of the world, it's not just somebody preaching it to you, but you know that you know that you know that God came and looking for you, He wanted you in His family and you have an experience of that, that settles the question of belonging for all time and you won't go into any new situation ever again figuring out what is right and required for acceptance in terms of belonging because you'll feel like you belong anywhere. You'll know you belong because you belong in the family of God. But the problem is that most of us don't know this in our hearts. When you know that you're holy, when you know that you're holy and blameless and beyond reproach, when you know that all of your sins have been forgiven then you will feel significant. And when you know you are the beloved of God, that there's nothing that you can do to separate you from his love, there's nothing you can do to make him love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make him love you less, then you will find security. And so there's, so what I encourage anyone that will listen to me, like tonight where you're captive audience is what would it look like if you made your Christian life? What would it look like for the next 12 months if you made the pursuit of your Christian life to have experience and encounters with the knowledge that you're chosen, with the knowledge that you're holy, and the knowledge that you are beloved? What if you did nothing else other than serve and you know, all those other great things that we do in church, but, but your spirituality? If I'm a disciple of Jesus, what do I want to learn for the next 12 months that would set me up for the rest of my Christian life? I want to say to you that what i found, the thing that sets me up and has set so many other people up that I have the pleasure of, of pastoring is that when you have revelation, God revealed to me that I'm chosen. You actually chose me. You adopted me. With all of my junk, you picked me to be on your team. You put me in your family knowing I'm screwed up and I'm a mess. And you wanted me in here. When you know that you are holy, that my junk actually belongs to my old life, not my new life, and that I am totally and utterly forgiven for all the wrong that I have done and all the wrong that I will do, I just need to ask for forgiveness to appropriate what the cross has already won. And to know that I'm loved unconditionally, it changes your life. Let me illustrate it for you tonight as we come to a close. So I need a Godhead. Some of you have already seen me do this before. So you three people on the the thank you for volunteering to be the Godhead. Come forward and step into your destiny to be God. <coughs> okay. So this looks like the Father to me. <laughs> this looks like the Holy Spirit. And we'll make you Jesus. So I want you to hold hands and stand in a circle. There we go. Thank you. All right. So, I'm far away from God. I'm on Sydney University lawns as a student, Marxist student politician who hates Christians and thinks they're nerds. And I'm wanting to argue with them. So, I'm a long way away from God. I drink too much and I'm doing all sorts of things that I shouldn't be doing. But some Christians come around me and they, you know, they come to talk to me and I think I've won the argument. But they pray for me and, and the Holy Spirit starts to move me towards God. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not really wanting to, but the Holy Spirit's drawing me towards him. And, I'm, and so I find myself coming towards the Lord. This was your story as well. You were away from God and he started to move you towards him. What I want you to think about with me tonight is, what do you think happened when you got born again? Let me give you a little clue. 81% of Christians in America, self-confessed Christians, believe that their spiritual maturity is measured by how well they follow the rules. Why do they think that? Because they're used to a performance-based culture and they think that God relates to them on the basis of their performance and so if they follow the rules well, then God will love them. And so what that does is that for most of us, most people in Australia actually think when they got born again, they got connected to the Godhead. They get born again and they have this amazing experience of the love of God and they feel like they get connected to the Godhead, but then they come to church. And they come to church and they start to hear about all these things that they should do and things they shouldn't do, which taps right back into that conditional love that we received when we were growing up. And so we do want to belong and we want to be secure and we want to be significant. And so what happens is that we start to listen to all sorts of messages which are well-intentioned and right and I'm not saying that they shouldn't be preached. The only problem is that they tap into something that we are having to get set free from. And so we we then, as new Christians, we stuff up. We do something we shouldn't do. And because we've been told that our relationship with God is on the basis of what we do, we feel like we're separated from God. But then the preachers help us. If you pray harder, if you fast longer, if you die double tithe, you'll actually get back close to God again. But then when you stuff up, you'll get disconnected from God. Because he's angry and he's upset and he's holy and we're a sinner and we only think about the theology of justification as well where we should be thinking about the theology of adoption. And so we have this relationship where I I feel close to God when I'm in worship but on Wednesdays when I'm not doing so well, God has somehow got distant from me. And our relationship with God becomes on the basis of behavior because it's actually easier to do religion than it is to do relationship because that's what we're used to. And so this is what we think happened when we got born again, when we just live in the theology of justification. A holy God, a sinner. Jesus died on the cross so that I could be connected to him, but he's still holy and I'm still a sinner. And so when I sin, this holy God must somehow have some negative feelings about me. And I have to get this holy God to have some positive feelings about me. But what really happened when you got born again is this. Just let go of her hand and then I come and close the hand, you actually got put in the Godhead. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. And it doesn't matter what you do, this is where you stay unless you choose to walk out. So you are in the, the reason he put you in here is because you've got all the resources that you need to become who he wants you to become. He doesn't expect you to do it in your own strength. He actually wants to help you. And so when you stuff up, he already knows you're going to stuff up and he's not intimidated by that. He says, I can help you not do that again because I love you. Because you're holy, you're blameless, you're beyond reproach, I'm, I'm with you in this. And so we then start to learn how to relate to these three people. Often we relate best to this guy because we feel like he knows what it's like to be a human being. This guy's a little bit intimidating because we've got all these authority figure problems and the Holy Spirit is like flipping, how ethereal is that? I don't know how to connect it. And so, but... But over time, we actually begin to realise this guy loves me. And he wants to hug me. Not like like my dad who wanted to hit me when I did the wrong thing. He wants to hug me when I do the wrong thing. And this one just is always in me and making me happy and joyful. If only I'll listen to her, him, them. (laughs) That this is a joy bringer. This is a peace bringer. This is my counsellor. This is actually the one who says, let me show you your fear. Because I want to set you free from it. And this guy's just there all day talking to these two saying, come on, let's go help them. He's our greatest advocate. He's the one who's there interceding for us and saying, they can make it. Let's go and help them. Let's send some angels. They're going to make it. They're going to go, awesome. And so that's why you're in here. Because all the resources you need to become like him is available because he is in you and you are in him. Can we put our hands together for the Godhead so they can sit down? (laughs) A hundred and sixty-nine times Paul in his letters said something like, you are in Christ, Christ is in you. You dwell in Christ, He dwells in you. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, do you not recognize that Christ is within you? This was so crucial for Paul that we lived a Christian life that was so full of freedom and so full of joy and so full of love that we realized that we're actually in the Godhead, we're not attached to the Godhead. This theology of justification is absolutely right and correct and necessary because it's a doorway, but it takes us into a mansion of the theology of adoption. But so many of us have camped in this theology of justification. Holy God, sinner, I'm a sinner saved by grace. The days are upon us where the God of heaven and earth is actually wanting you to know that you're chosen. You're in the family. You are holy. You are in the family. And you are beloved, you're in the family and nothing, but nothing, but nothing can get you out of there other than your decision to disconnect. Once we know this and we have experience of it, we then begin to love people in the most amazing way. We are kind to them and we're tender towards them and they begin to feel that love coming from us and they want to connect with this God that we know. But the dilemma that we face is that on the inside this truth is almost too good to be true. And our fear keeps us away from that truth. And so tonight if I can have the worship team come back, thank you. What I want to do uh, is just create an opportunity as we come to a close that if you would like me to pray for you that you would have a level of experience tonight. You're not going to get it all tonight. If you do, that's not fair because it's taken me 35 years to get to where I am. (laughs) But there is something on me that I want to be able to release to you that your journey into this space that you know you're chosen, so you belong. You don't need anybody else to accept you anymore. You belong in the Godhead. Now, this doesn't mean it gives you permission to be a a really nasty piece of work because you won't be because if you know how much you are loved, you'll love well. I'm not, I'm not saying that what other people think doesn't matter, but I am saying that what other people think doesn't matter. Because I want you to know that you're chosen and you belong. I want you to know that you're holy and therefore you're significant. You don't need to try and be significant with your work and with how much money you've got and how effective your ministry is. Your significance is not tied to that. Your significance is tied to the fact that God made you holy. You are a child of God. That's who you really are. And he wants you to know that you're the beloved of God because then you will be absolutely secure in your own skin. So can we all stand together tonight? And you guys know what to do because you do it all the time. So it's over to you. That's your part. My part is that I'm happy just to pray for anybody that would like to have have more of an experience of those three things or have those experiences turbocharged. But something happened to you tonight where the Lord shifts you and moves you. So if that's you, you probably know what to do as well. You step out of your seat and you come down into this wonderful prayer ministry space, which I am so thrilled about. There's no pressure on my part. I'm happy if it's only one person. I've I got some of this sorted out. I, I just love Jesus and I know he loves me. And I'm not perfect, but that's what's important. So those of you who are at the front here, can you just close your eyes? Can you adopt the prayer position and uh, just put your hands out in front of you? So in about 60 seconds, I'm just going to walk along. I'm just going to stand in front of you for a few moments and pray. And as I do, I want you to have your heart open. I don't want you to be praying at that point. I just want you to receive. But as you're getting ready to receive, I want you just to pray this prayer after me. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I stand before you tonight because I want to experience being chosen, being holy, and being the beloved of God. I want more. I want to know this more. I want to know this by revelation. I want to know this by encounter with you. And so I invite you, Jesus. I invite your Holy Spirit. I invite you, Father, to come and touch my life and move me forward on this great journey of being a disciple of Jesus. And the reason I asked you to come out here is because Pippa had to change his posture and his expectation. And so that's just what I've done for you. I've changed your posture and I've asked you to change your expectation. The next bit that will happen is that somewhere over the next 24 hours, maybe the next week, you will begin to see things that you've not seen before. And you need to journal them. You need to write them down. You need to remember them. You need to pray into them so that your behavior follows. And not just this week, but all of this year, I I would really like you to think seriously about why don't you make 2017 a year where this is what You do, you posture yourself in your own prayer time and in church to receive ongoing revelation about what we're doing here tonight. For the rest of those who are out there, can you just reach out and pray for them please? Can you just imagine that you would be wanting prayer and can we do this together? This is not just me, this is all of us doing this together. And so if you can join with me and reaching out in prayer. And then the worship team may lead us in some worship and we'll sing and the power and the presence of God will begin to touch and change people's lives.